The recording that you're about to listen to is a talk from the City Bible Forum. We would appreciate you respecting our copyright by not making copies of this talk or altering the content in any way. We hope that you find the material beneficial. If you would like more information on the City Bible Forum, you can visit us on the web at citybibleforum.org. Hi everyone, how about we start our meeting today. Welcome to the Forum. I'm Craig, if we haven't met before. Really pleased that you're here today. At the start of this new series in November called Visions of the Apocalypse, How Will the World End? So we'll be spending a month looking at one of the more vibrant and colourful books in the New Testament, the book of Revelation. Our speaker for most of this month will be Ian Powell, although next week we're bringing a guy off the bench called Al Stewart. The format of our meeting is that Ian will speak for 20 or so minutes and then it's a chance for you to ask questions or to make comments. You'll see my mobile number come up on the screen in a minute. You can text me questions. I'll have a roving mic at the end. You can just stick up your hand. I'll bring the microphone over. You can ask a question or you can make a comment. Anything that you want to. Or you can write it on the slip of paper and just hold it up and we'll collect that. Please open up your programs and I will read part of the Bible section that Ian will be talking about today. As I said, it's from the book of Revelation in the New Testament, which is the last book of the Bible. I'll read that first section from Revelation chapter 1, the top left-hand side. The Apocalypse, Revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And we'll just skip down to Revelation 5. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the line that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome. So is able to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. He came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Well, good afternoon. If you had uh, yesterday's paper on the day before, so if you had Wednesday's paper on Tuesday, you could very easily become a millionaire, very easily. Um, Even if you had a very small amount of money. The knowledge of the future is very helpful, isn't it? So you just needed a bit of money, $10, $20, $100, bet on the right horse in the first race at Flemington, take that money, put it on the right horse for the second horse, and all that you would know because you had Wednesday's paper on Tuesday. 
Um, and um, you could have done any number of trifectas and all sorts of things. You could have even done that ridiculous one they're asking you to pick, um, offering you squillions of dollars if you could pick the first ten or something like that, which no one can, of course. Um, the knowledge of the future is critical. I had my car run into the other day, and if I had known that the man driving that little van was going to be playing on his phone, I wouldn't have parked on that particular curve. You can avoid a lot of trouble if you know it's in the future. You can cope with a lot of things if you know that it's only short-term, not long-term. The knowledge of the future is about the most relevant thing you can have in living in the now time. And one of the ways that people talk about particular visions of the future are apocalyptic visions. Now, I'm going to suggest to you in a minute that, that they use the word apocalypse or apocalyptic, which comes into English through the Bible in a way that the Bible never uses it. But you'll know that there are all sorts of um, uh, movies that have apocalyptic themes. And the apocalypse, that is, it's a bleak, catastrophic thing that happens that changes life from the now time to the bleak, apocalyptic, sort of all post-apocalyptic period. It can be the apocalypse from nuclear problems. You know, some nuclear thing happens and everything's ruined. Or it can be technological. Often it's a, Frankenst a Frankenstein thing. Some of our own technology has ganged up. That's behind Terminator and things like that. It's ganged up and ruined us. Or it can be viral often. Something's just cleaned out great bulks of mankind and the vampires come. Um, uh, there's all sorts of pictures. Or it can be an alien visitation. All sorts of things. Something happens that just destroys life as we know it and it's bleak. Now, apocalypse, and if you have a look at the um, inside of your outline there, you've got the parts of the Bible there. The first verse, it says this, the apocalypse or revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. So, apocalypse is an English form of a Greek word. What does it mean? It does not mean bleak. It does not mean, you know, horrid end. It simply means to reveal something to take something that is hidden and disclose it. Normally the idea is that something that you couldn't possibly know unless someone had disclosed it to you. So many of you will have heard the stories about my six-pack on my stomach. And uh, some of you don't realize that the reason it just looks kind of fat and lazy is because like all valuable things, I've got my six-pack well-wrapped uh, to keep it safe. And so if, if there's some discussion, does Ian have a six-pack? It's easy to show. I'll just I'll give you an apocalypse. I unveil it. Now, because I love you, I won't keep going. But that, that's the idea. It's, it's the unveiling of something. It's the revealing of something you couldn't possibly be certain of until the apocalypse, the unveiling happened. That's what it means to uncover. So let's have a look at this apocalypse, where the word comes into English from. Actually, there's lots of things come into English from this book. It's surprising how many. Um, it says, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. So there's something about these movies that is right. It's about the future, that God is going to reveal things about what is about to take place. So let's have a look at what happens here just very briefly before we have time for questions. And that is the, um, firstly, the apocalypse is a person. Revelation chapter 1. Uh, I've skipped verses out, not because I don't like them. I like them very much. And I hope that you will not trust me. You'll go and read them for yourself. But it's just in terms of time. When the apocalypse begins, this is the first major thing he sees in verse 17, chapter 1, the second paragraph. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. 
The interesting thing when you look at the apocalypse, as far as God is concerned, is that before you need to know what will happen, and you will be told what will happen, you need to see something about the people who run it, the person, the who, before the what. And so the first thing you see is a vision of Jesus. Uh, that's who this character is. He was, I was dead, he says, but I am alive forevermore. Now John is a friend, a devotee of Jesus. And when he sees Jesus, what is it like to see Jesus? One of the really stupid things some of my atheist friends talk about is God or Jesus as my invisible friend. And they talk about, I don't need an invisible friend, if as if that's what Jesus is. But of course, Jesus may be a friend, but that is not how it, what it's like to meet him. Look at what happens to John when Jesus, his master, and whom he loves, turns up. This doesn't happen when I see my friends. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. So shocking was it to see just a vision of Jesus that he is knocked off his feet and he collapses. And the first thing Jesus has to say to him is, do not be afraid. I've never seen a friend and had that sort of response, to fall at his feet like a dead man. When my friends see me, the first thing they don't say to me is, do not be afraid. Because I'm not afraid to see a friend. It's just the wrong category. It's a stupid category to talk about God as your invisible friend. Um, but, but he sees Jesus and Jesus says to him, don't be afraid of me, although he is fearsome and magnificent and majestic. And if Jesus turned up here, right here, right now, in a vision like that, it would, be, it, you, it would rock you to your socks, whether you are his friend or his enemy. He's, he's um, awesome, truly. But the first thing is he's a person. That's what he gets to see. And it moves on. In verse chapter, uh, Revelation chapter 4, moving right along there, we, in verse, the end of verse 1, see those words where it says, come. This is really kind of the essence of what's going with the book. Come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. It's the invitation to come up. It is, it is to get a bird's eye view. You know how often if, if you're trying to work out what's happening, to get a bird's eye view. When, when we first invented little aeroplanes to use in military, well, we invented them and, of course, we, then we turned the technology to military use and we used them for, in the First World War. The first thing they did with the aeroplanes was to use them to get a, vi a view. Ah, now I can see what those Germans are doing. And the Germans would send their little biplanes. And say, ah, I can see what those tricky pommies are doing. And then um, they could kill each other much more effectively when you got the bird's eye view. So what you're getting here is the invitation not to get a bird's eye view, but to get kind of an angel's eye view, or even better, a, a, a divine eye view. So you, the, you call us to come up in this picture into heaven, and then you'll be able to see where we're going, what, what the landscape is, how we can be prepared to live well in the middle of it. So he's called up to get a vision. What does he see? Immediately, verse 2, I was in the spirit, and behold... A throne was standing in heaven. That's the first thing he sees. You get a vision into ultimate reality and the first thing you'll see is a throne. Now, I'm not a monarchist, but I know what a throne symbolises. Throne is a symbol of power and the centre of power if there's a throne. And um, he sees not only that there is a throne, but there's one sitting on the throne. It often feels as if there isn't anyone in charge. The world and, and life often feels quite, you know, random. But the first thing that John notices is there's a throne and there's someone on the throne. Now that's very significant, particularly when life is going crazy, which it often does for us. But don't forget, when this letter is written, the Apostle John is where? He's in prison on a bare rock island. It was a labour prison. So he's in, not labourers against liberal, but it's where you had to work. So he's in a prison. He's an old man who's been put in prison because of his Christianity. 
He writes letters to the churches in chapters 2 and 3, which we're not going to look at today. Uh, and, and if you read them, they're churches that are in trouble. Some of them have got troubles internally because there's silly things happening, silly things being said. Some of them have had members killed already. And many of them are promised by Jesus that there will be hard times to come. So to, to see, oh, okay, things are not just, we're not just at the mercy of the massive power of the Roman Empire, but there is someone who's on the real throne uh, and we can trust him. So you're taken, as it were, to the centre of the universe before you're given a picture of the end of time. The question that it first wants to let you know is that there is someone in charge, even though it very often feels as if there might not be. So that's the first thing that John, the prisoner, the lover of Jesus, sees, is a great throne. Well then, skipping along to chapter 5, and it's interesting actually how often in this book the throne turns out. Some people have called the book of Revelation the book of the throne. Because over 35 times the throne is mentioned. Sometimes God, they, often they won't even talk about God. They'll just speak about the one seated on the throne says. Now, I don't know if you remember when the movie Noah came out. And Christians, I think, understandably a bit edgy when um, the Bible gets put onto movies. The, the, one, the new one came out with Moses. We'll see what that's like. But some people didn't like the fact, although I didn't meet anyone, but some people said that Christians didn't like the fact that in the movie uh, Noah, God is never referred to. Well, he is, of course. But he's not called God, G-O-D. He's called the Creator. Now, personally, I think that's more useful than G-O-D. G-O-D is a fairly meaningless word. When you speak of the Creator, it tells you immediately of your relationship with that person. You're in somebody else's world. Right? And normally the person who made something and owns it is interested in how you behave in his space. So I, in Revelation, it will speak of God, uses all sorts of terms to reference it, but very often it's he who sat upon the throne, which is very uh, important to hold on to, particularly in life, is difficult. Well, what's he up to? Verse, chapter 5, verse 1, down the bottom of the page, left hand there. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written on the inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Now, the word book is a sort of a modern translation of, well, it is the word biblon, but it's, it, it's, in those days a book was a scroll. And if you had a lot to say, you wrote on the back and the front. And then if you wanted to be kept secure, and well, you'd put seals across it, and seven seals is an awful lot of seals to put across a document to make sure that only the right person opens it and gets to read it. But here's the, here's the sort of the, the scroll, and, and you, as you read through the book of Revelation, what's on the scroll is what's going to happen into the future. The scroll is, as it were, God's plan that he's written out. Now, this isn't God, you know, like your New Year's Eve or New Year resolutions or whatever, your plans to get done this week. I write those out sometimes, and I get in like, gee, 23 things, and I've got through three of them. Right, transfer those 21 to the next week, another 17 to add to that. Let's go. It's not like that. It's not like those sort of... But when God makes a plan, he, will, he, he works it out. And it happens slowly over time. So there's a, there's a scroll. And good, the, the, the persecuted John who's in prison, who wants to encourage all these little Christian churches, they've got the whole might of the Roman Empire now against them. Um, it's, what is God our Father up to? The one on the throne. And then the question is, who, who's worthy to open the scroll? And therefore to see these things happen? And nobody. So it looks as if we're just not going to know what our destiny is. We're just going to live in the middle of what is apparent chaos. And then 
as you hear verse 4, I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And then one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome, so I was able to open the book and the seven seals. Now, if we have a look up here, when the seven seals, uh, just this um, will hopefully give you a sort of an overview of the book. And it's very carefully laid out in terms of sevens in particular. So you've got the opening vision of Jesus that he falls before. Then you've got the letters to the seven churches. These are real churches in what we would call Turkey. And they're very interesting. You hear what Jesus commends them for and what Jesus slaps them around for and tells them to lift their game. Um, Then you've got these visions here in chapter 4 and 5, which is the central vision. In order to see the end, you go up to the centre. Then you've got this scroll that you've mentioned and it it gets opened. The seven seals get opened and Al's going to go through the first four of the seals next week with the four horses that come out, the famous four horses of the apocalypse. Uh, Al will look at that next week. Uh, So you've got the seven seals and then when you get to the seventh seal it opens into the seven trumpets, uh, seven more uh, facets of what's happening. Then in the middle part you get to the seven signs which has got some of the most exciting stuff we'll look at this which has got the, the woman giving birth to a child and there's a dragon seeking to play midwife it actually wants to eat the baby and then you've got the beasts and all these famous things that turn up in Hollywood movies we've got the number 666 and all these sorts of things it's all there uh, you've got the seven great signs then you've got the seven great plagues working working their way out and then you arrive at the final triumph of the almighty they fixed that yesterday, it said trumpet, which is kind of nice too. But the final triumph, because in the end, you see, the apocalypse, the real apocalypse, the original one, is not a tragedy. It's actually a comedy. It finishes good. And for those suffering people like John and the little church has been crushed under the might of Rome, they're told, you are, you are on the winning side. It's like, it's like being with the Allies against the Nazis at the beginning in 1939. You're on the losing side pretty clearly if you're fighting with the Allies. But by 1945, aha, good, the good guys are going to win. Uh, and that's what we're told in this account. So that's what happens. And then let's move along because um, the, the call is, well, who, who is allowed to, what, what person can open the scrolls and, and see what's happening? And we're told nobody except, there's one exception in the whole cosmos, and it's a lion. Now, the lion is the most frequently mentioned animal in the Bible, which I think is kind of good because I like lions. They're kind of scary. I've seen a lion once, kind of in the wild. Um, I got to go across to Uganda and give some talks there at uni. They had a really good speaker and he couldn't come, so I came off the reserve bench. And um, fortunately, I got to go to this game reserve at the end with this guy who was there, and we were in this sort of big land cruisery thing and um, sticking out the top, taking pictures. And we came to a part where there's a group of lions that had just killed a buffalo. It would have been, I think it would have been exciting to watch it. But there's a dirty big guy lion he's already eaten he's got blood on his mane he's sitting there and all the other little lions are eating this thing and having their breakfast and there's some lions on the other side of the road and our guide said to us he said you guys probably better get in you you feel as if you're pretty safe don't you a long way but actually they could be up there in a second and at the moment they're in eating mode and you just kind of look like a sandwich has been delivered so probably better to get down so lions are very impressive critters and uh, i love them i think but and there's a lion from the tribe of Judah. Now the tribe of Judah, that's, that's where the kings of Israel came from. That's where the Christ is coming from, the tribe of Judah. And the, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the greatest king, has overcome. Ah, he's, he's, he is confident, this, this one, this, this magnificent creature. 
this, this magnificent person who's like a lion. And then, then we meet the lion. We turn, he says, you know, he turns to look at the lion. He hears about the lion. Then he turns to look at the lion in verse 6, top of the right-hand page. I saw between the throne and the elders a lamb. And it's not just a lamb. This is a special lamb. There's, a, there's an addition to the end of the word lamb, which means lammy. It means really cute and small and weak and fragile lamb. Um, it's a lamb. It's standing right next to the throne. A lamb standing as if he'd been slain. So you're expecting to see a lion, you know, a picture of power and triumph that has conquered. And what you see is a lammy. You know, Mary had a little lamb. He sleeps with white as snow. It's, not, it's, it's just a ridiculous notion, but actually the lamb eats the lion and the lion is found inside the lamb. And it's a, a weak-looking little lamb. And it's a lamb that's not only is it weak, but it's been unlucky, it's been slain. So this is a, this is a real sad little lamb here. Uh, and yet it is, it's actually the lion. The lion has morphed into this lamb. But the odd thing about the lamb is it's standing, so it's alive, but it has been slain. So it's got the mark of its death upon it. Even a man as great as Gough Whitlam was dies. All of us, in the end, are conquered by death. You may have a short stay or a long stay. It doesn't matter if you're the most wealthiest man in the world, the President of the United States. In the end, we all get conquered. In the end, death has a dance on us. And yet this lamb was slain and yet is alive. This is the lamb that is the lion that has conquered. This is Jesus again. Who is the one worthy to open the scroll and to control the unwinding of God's purpose for this world? The one on the throne. It's the lamb that is the lion. Terrible in power and yet gentle. Dying in apparent weakness. Overcome, defeated and yet uh, the great conqueror. In the end the roaring lion rules or the roaring lamb rules and opens up the future. And the, this chapter finishes up with all sorts of people singing. In the end every creator thing in heaven and earth singing about to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honour. And, and in this book, we don't hear again of the Lion, but we hear a lot about the Lamb, the Lamb who rules, the Lamb who is the Lion, full of power, full of kindness, often looking like a loser as the early Christian church. It's very, very hard for us. When people ask all sorts of questions, why doesn't the Bible talk about this? The early Christian church was the most pathetic little organisation. And when the Roman Empire turns its face towards it, which it did, and says, we will crush you, we will wipe you out. If you had any money to bet left over from Tuesday, you would not in a thousand years have bet that the church would have even survived, let alone become the largest movement in human history. It was weak. Its leaders were mostly executed. The only one who wasn't was John, who as an old man is imprisoned. The churches are being... Um, crushed and systematically crushed in some places as we know from other parts of history it's like a lamb being crushed but in the end it's the crucified jesus who conquers death and now rules in heaven and so people begin to sing and dance al will open up some of the specifics next week on what's going to happen as the seals are open but the crucial thing that john wants if you want to understand the future you've got to understand who's in charge and the relief is somebody is in charge. 
even though then and now evil seems to be in charge. Bad guys seem to win. Good guys are often losing. That's how life is in this broken world. I remember speaking at, the, at a funeral, not a funeral, well, it's a sort of a funeral. Two people, it was the funeral of their singleness. They were getting married and um, had no idea how much suffering this particular couple were going to go through. They're a marvellous couple. But I'd found this quote from the old days, which I used, and it says this. We don't know what the future holds, but we do know who holds the future. That was true for them, for Matthew and Anne, and it's true for you, and it's true for all people. We know who holds the future. It is the one who's on the throne, and it's the lamb that is the lion that was slain and can be trusted because he is kind as well as powerful. I've had some moments where things have gone terribly wrong. I won't bore you with the story, but I had a thing where I had this, this thing set up for our most perfect week and everything that could go wrong did go wrong. It was just blown out of the water. And I remember walking thinking, how on earth am I going to reorganize this? And I had this thought, and it was just this. It was, I was reminded, God is on the throne. He has not gone to sleep. He has not fallen off. I have no idea why he's let this happen. I wish he hadn't. My life is going to be much hectic now because of it. I've had other times where I've had a thought when terrible things have happened and I've remembered this has gone across God's desk, as it were. I, I wish he had sort of not signed off on it, but he allows bad things into our lives and does great things, as he did with the crucifixion. So in terms of the future, you'll need to come next week to hear more about that and the weeks to come. But what, it, what God wants you to know is when you go up to get a vision of what's coming is that there is a person in charge on a great throne. Like the lamb. Well, let's uh, stop there so there's some time for questions. Thanks, Ian. I'll give you a minute or so to gather your thoughts. If you'd like to ask a question or make a comment, you can write it on the slip of paper inside your program, hold it up, and I'll come and collect it and read it out. You can text a question or a comment to me, or, or you can just stick your hand up. So you might have a question about the place of uh, Jesus at the end. You might have a question about, about the throne, who's in control, as Ian was mentioning. This scroll, or God's plan for the end. You might have a question about Jesus, the lion slash lamb. I'll give you a few seconds just to gather your thoughts and... Could you explain why Jesus is known as the Lion of Judah and then referred to as the Lamb? They're two vastly different. Sure, I'll give it, I'll give it my best go to explain why the Lion and the Lamb. Um, always with the Bible, the, the way to understand the Bible is to go back into the Bible. And Revelation is one of the most extraordinary books in terms of the way it just uses again and again Bible images from the Old Testament in a way that is quite extraordinary. I, I came to a conclusion a little while ago. This book of Revelation is not written by a madman, which some people think because it's got some crazy images. It's written by an, an extreme genius in the way that it blends these Old Testament themes together, by, uh, earlier Bible themes, or it's written by God. 
um, or both. Um, the lion of the tribe of Judah, this was a, goes right back to um, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the earliest patriarchs who speaks about Judah, from Judah will come a lion. And Judah was one of the 12 tribes of Israel from which the kings came. Kings only came from the tribe of Judah. And David is from the tribe of Judah. And, and there's this promise of this great king who will come. And the, the job of a king is not to sit in a palace and you know, occasionally visit a country and open a, a, you know, a library or something. The job of a king is to keep his people safe and to bless them. That's the, that's the job of a king. He's actually the servant of the people. So this great king will come. and that's, So your, your attention is turned to this great lion, which is a, the picture of the Christ or the Messiah, the promised one. And then when you see him, he does his great work as a lamb getting slain. So it's a, it's a magnificent way of bringing together these two quite separate themes in the Old Testament, that there's a great powerful king who will rescue, but lambs are slain in, in, in order to deal with sin. And in Jesus brilliantly and quite, quite uniquely uh, in, in all the Jewish thought that there was around Jesus to, to bring those two things together in the one person um, was quite extraordinary. And that, that's who Jesus is. So he's, he is the one who, if he, if he appears, you are liable to fall down as, as dead. And he will need to say, don't be afraid. Although, what does he then say? It's interesting what Jesus says to John when he's frightened. Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. Well, that's hardly comforting. That's a bit scary too. You know, that I'm the Alpha and the Omega, which is what it says of God. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore. So it, it takes you straight back there to that conquering, suffering one. Yeah. Anyone else? Just a quick one on the, the phrase, uh, which must soon take place. Yes. So that would tend to indicate it would be within their lifetime. So, I mean, I've, I've read different things about this. What, what's your take on that soon to take place? Yes, in verse, in verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, the things which must soon take place. And then chapter 4, verse 1, come up here and I'll show you what must take place after these things. Um, there is... There is in the, in the book of Revelation things that seem to take place almost immediately, almost a happening there and then. Uh, and there are things about the last, the last days, which seem to us to be a terrific amount of time later, to be waiting for 2,000 years. Um, uh, you, you may know there's a phrase in the Bible that for the Lord a thousand years are like a day. So from one perspective, you know, two days is not that long. Um, uh, I think we are simply told these things are, are coming soon and um, Christians have lived that way and continue to. Uh, I, I think the Bible simply, like when, when the Jews were promised a Messiah, they were kept waiting for a thousand or something years. When they were expecting rescue from Egypt, they waited for a few hundred years. God has this tendency to move. Um, people say that God has got two speeds. Slowly and instantly. So, you know, things go on and the question is, can I trust God? Will I trust God? Surely, for crying out loud, how long have I got to put up with this? This has been 10 minutes or maybe a 1,000 years. Uh, and then God suddenly acts in a way that is decisive and often far better than you would have imagined. No one imagined, none of the, the uh, Jewish people waiting for the Messiah expected to get a Messiah of such magnificence and beauty as Jesus. No one expected God's own son to come to earth. We would never think to ask for that and for him to die in our place. So yes, we, we're left with this um, waiting 
what seems like a long time, but is actually momentary. And one level, um, it's kind of easy now that we know that, well, probably with the, the best of science, probably 15 billion years since God kicked the show off. Um, that figure might be wrong. So I think uh, 2,000 years seems a long time for us, but it's actually, what, it's actually 40 people my age. It's less than that. You put 40 people, you put a busload of me, and you're back in the time of Jesus. Doesn't seem to me all that long. Any other questions? Any uh, written questions on the slips of paper? Okay. Okay, I think that's it. Al will come next week and answer all questions. Okay, I just want to tell you about two things that are coming up next week. The first is on Wednesday night. It's called The Short Course for the Curious. I'll read out some bits from the bit of paper inside your program. Uh, It says, some of the things I'll be covering, covering, who is Jesus? What did he teach? What did he do? Is he still relevant to me? So it'll be over four Wednesday nights starting next Wednesday night. No prior knowledge is required and there's no charge to attend and a complimentary dinner served at 6pm and it's just across the road over here in the HSBC building at 580 George Street. If you'd like to come to that or if you know someone who would like to come, email Mark Leong. His his details are on that sheet. And the other thing next week is the Wolf of George Street. I was told that I had to howl as I was giving this announcement. Oh! Anyway, Al... That's Al Stewart. <laughs> so Al is doing two gigs next week. He's doing this one on Monday night. This is for the young workers. Anyone under 60? Uh, you can see the... You can register online at the City Bible Forum website or you can email Torlu. It'll be a great night. He'll be looking at the topic... How do you find success? So I guess it's playing off the sort of walls, you know, the movie The Wolf of Wall Street, The Wolf of George Street. And uh, next Wednesday, as Ian said, Al is on the horse, we might say, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. All right, well, some um, good things that we've seen today. Uh, we've seen who is actually on the throne. The world seems out of control. But the book of Revelation says that Jesus is on the throne. There is someone in charge, someone who has the future in their hand. So that's something that you might like to think about as you go back to work this afternoon. Have a great day. The recording that you have just listened to is from the City Bible Forum. For more information about City Bible Forum events in your city or to order other talks, please visit citybibleforum.org.